Luke chapter 18. A few uh, weeks back, I, I mentioned to you that after uh, thinking about it and praying about it a lot, we've decided to switch the, the official translation that we use at our church to the ESV version, English Standard Version from the New King James Version. Uh, both really good versions, but the English Standard Version just seems to have a little bit clearer and more uh, accurate translation in certain areas that I've seen and is becoming a lot more used in different curriculums and different materials that we often put into use here at the church. And so we've decided to switch to that ESV. I mentioned to you that we were going to finish out the second section of Luke. Uh, we've been splitting this book into Luke, of Luke into three, chap or three sections and that when we got to section three we'd begin using the ESV. So I've got a brand new bottle that I'm trying to break in here so it keeps closing on me. But uh, if you still got your New King James Version, that's perfectly okay for you to be using that. Um, but of course, uh, we would love for you to, uh, to be able to have the Word. So if you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll bring one of our older New King James Versions. We haven't gotten the, uh, the new boxes of ESVs in quite yet, but we'll be switching our house, house translations to ESVs really soon. Those who have studied the life of Jesus but do not, do not yet believe that He is the Son of God have a very different perspective on His crucifixion than most of us in this room have. Whereas we see the cross as the way, the means by which Jesus defeated our sin and fulfilled the mission that he was called to accomplish, those who see Jesus as nothing more than a philosopher or a teacher or a religious leader see the cross as a tragic ending to an otherwise remarkable life. They often take note of the important philosophical and moral contributions that Jesus of Nazareth made to the world. They think about the fact that he taught the golden rule, do unto others as they, he would have them do unto you, that, that he shared the Beatitudes and in doing so lifted up the poor in spirit and the merciful and the peacemakers of the world who were often overlooked. They see that he fought against greed and materialism, that he advocated for care for the marginalized and the overlooked people of the world. But they interpret his arrest, his trial, his execution on the cross at Calvary as evidence that Jesus did not go about things the right way. They believe that if he had only held a slightly lower profile, perhaps, he could have gone on to develop his ideas more fully and made an even greater contribution to the society that he was impacting with his wisdom and his teachings. The cross to them was defeat for Jesus. It was an unexpected consequence of swimming against the current and speaking against the Jewish status quo and the Roman governing body of his day. The cross was an unfortunate ending to a brilliant mind that sadly died too young, they believe. But Scripture makes it very clear that this is not how Jesus saw the cross. To Jesus, a man whose life and teachings have been carefully recorded and passed down through history, the cross was not an unexpected ending that derailed his plans and cut short his life and his ministry. The cross was very clearly the end goal that Jesus lived his entire life on earth to accomplish. He was the ultimate fulfillment of his mission, and as we're going to see today, of all Scripture. The four verses of Luke that we will be meditating on this morning represent the third time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has stopped his disciples, pulled them away from what they were doing, and clearly explained to them what God had planned for him to do in Jerusalem. It was the unstoppable will of God 
that Jesus would go to the city of David, be judged for the sins of the world, sins that he did not commit, be put to death for those sins, and then rise again on the third day. As we have our Bibles open to Luke chapter 18, we're reading verses 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we ask God to prepare our hearts as we think about these eternal words. God, we love you. We pray that you would settle our souls right now, Lord, that every disadvantage of life, every trial that we've been experiencing might be put to the side for a moment, that we might come to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. I pray that we would understand these words for what they are intended to communicate to us from you and your divine mind. I pray, Lord God, that they would make an impact upon us, that we would in humility receive them for what they are, that we would not try to press them into our understanding of things, try to shape them into the mold of the way we view the world, Lord God, but that instead we would conform ourselves to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would come to believe the truth that you have revealed to be actually true. We love you and thank you for this time and look for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. As we discussed last week, verses 31 through 34 of chapter 18 mark a big shift in the book of Luke. The time has finally come. Jesus has given signs that prove to the world that he is the manifestation of God's Messiah, this, this anointed one that Israel has been waiting for. He has healed so many. He has cast out demons, even raising the dead. The powerful sicknesses of this world have no power over him. He has defeated them. He has taught the truth boldly, bringing light into dark places, exposing the errors that had infected the hearts and minds of much of Israel. Jesus challenged people. He exhorted them. He has fulfilled the law in his very actions by keeping every bit of God's command and doing it lovingly. And now the time has come for Jesus to complete the most important task that God has set before him. Jesus and his 12 disciples are doing what many other Jewish men and women are doing at the same time. In this passage of Scripture, we see them on the way to Jerusalem. They are approaching this special city of God because it is the days leading up to the Passover festival. So believers in, in Yahweh from all over the Roman Empire are converging upon Jerusalem so that they can join in the festivities there and exalting God the way that the Old Testament Scripture had commanded them to exalt Him. They have journeyed from city to city, village to village, on their way down to Jerusalem. Each place they went expounding this gospel message that brings hope and radical change to the nation of Israel. Everything from this point forward as we enter into these next sections of scriptures is going to accelerate their progress towards the cross. We will read next week that Jesus and his disciples are almost to the city of Jericho physically. That's 
how close they are to Jerusalem. That's about 20 miles away from the holy city. And as it says that they are going upward to Jerusalem, they are ascending. It's because Jerusalem was built on a raised elevation. It was several thousand feet above where Jericho was. In just one day's travel, they would go up uh, more than 2,000 feet to get to the city of David. So anywhere you were going, if you were going to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. And here he stops his men. And this is the third time that he wants to tell them details about what God intends for him. That he wants to reveal to them the ultimate plan God had to send them to this earth, not just to live, but to die a very intentional death. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, he had done something very similar. Verse 21 says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Several things happened between, between that time and the second telling of his, his death, burial, and resurrection. Nine days go by. In that nine-day period, the transfiguration has happened. His glory has been revealed to James and John and Peter on the mountain. And then Jesus again finds it appropriate to proclaim his death to his 12 disciples. In cha chapter 9, verses 44 through 45, he says, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. So this will be the third time that Jesus is clearly confronting them with the truth that His time on earth is short. There are several other mentions of His death in the book of Luke. Four other Scriptures that I've listed in your note sheet if you want to go look those up later, where Jesus proclaims in a very subtle way that He is going to die. But each of those is more of an illusion than a description. And so this third proclamation contains more detail than the first two times that Jesus brought His disciples apart and told them what He intended to do. This third proclamation elaborates on the who. On the who. Verse 32 again. For he will be delivered over to who? The Gentiles. The guilty party here is the Gentiles. Jesus is showing that through the hands of Roman soldiers, he will be made to suffer. The ethnason in the Greek, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish people, will take a part in his execution as well. In the other predictions, Luke 9.22, he said that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes were going to be involved with his persecution and his death. Then in 9.44, he talks about being turned over to the hands of men. 17.25 mentions that this present generation would be involved with his execution. And here the Gentiles are mentioned as a guilty party as well. Altogether, we see here that the blood of Jesus is not just on one ethnic group. The blood of Jesus is on the hands of all men. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so the Gentiles too are involved with his persecution and crucifixion. Secondly, this third proclamation elaborates on the how. Chapter 9's prediction told us that Jesus would suffer many things. And some of those many things are lined out in verses 32 through 33. Jesus, speaking of himself in the third person, I find it really interesting that in this, in this revelation to his twelve, 
that he speaks about himself in the third person. That he doesn't talk directly about how I will go to the cross, but he says the Son of Man, the one whom you have come to know, will die soon. Almost as if it is a bigger truth than, than, than even he can refer to himself. This is God's plan for eternity. And so in chapter 9's prediction, he says that he would suffer many things and then lists several different conditions specifically that he will have to endure. We hear that he will be mocked. And we see this, don't we? When they put upon Jesus a robe of purple, when they placed a fake crown upon his head, and even go to such great lengths as to write out and fix a small sign that was posted to the cross of Jesus which says, Behold the King of the Jews. One of the many false accusations about Jesus was that he claimed to overthrow the Roman government, that he was inciting a rebellion. In fact, that was a misinterpretation of what he had said as, as he had revealed that he was indeed the King of Kings, that God had sent to rule on the throne of David. The rule he was talking about was an eternal rule over all creation, not just a rule over a certain district or a part of land or a certain nation. And yet these men have mocked him and made light of this claim that he is indeed an anointed king sent by God. The, the scripture tells us that this Messiah would be shamefully treated before his death. We see that as they grabbed upon his beard and as they tore at his clothes. We see that as we read into the Passion that they struck him in the face with their fists and they cried out against him as if he were some kind of an animal or some terribly low criminal. Luke tells us that the Savior will be spit upon. And friends, I can't think of a more vivid display of disgust and disrespect than to spit upon another human being. And yet Jesus endured that willingly for us. We're told that Jesus would be flogged. This is not just some small whipping. This is a terrible, terrible punishment meant to change people's minds forever. To be flogged by the Roman government meant to be taken into a public place and fastened to a pole where your assailants, the Roman soldiers, would then take an instrument called the Cato Nine Tails, which was a small stick with nine strips of leather upon which pieces of bone and rock and glass might be ground into. That, th that whip would then be used to not only punish but to fillet the back of the individual who had committed serious crimes against Rome. Often these floggings would bring a person to within an inch of their life. The person who was flogged by Roman officials and Roman soldiers would never forget that their sins against the empire had serious consequences. This was no slap on the wrist. And eventually, as this proclamation reveals to us, Jesus would be killed. He would be put to death. The mode of execution would be the heinous act of crucifixion where an individual would be nailed to a wooden cross and put on display so that all can see how a criminal dies in the Roman Empire. They would suffer from incredible fatigue, dehydration as they bled out. They would have a difficult time holding themselves up on that cross and eventually the constriction that being stretched out upon that instrument caused would make them suffocate to death. It is worth noting here that the more specific a prophecy is, the more you can be sure it is of God when it comes to pass. 
Jesus is not just saying, I will die, generically. He is saying specifically the means by which his life would be brought to an end. Now, some self-proclaimed prophets make predictions and try to show that they have some secret wisdom, but the predictions that they make are nothing more than vague generalities. I can predict to you tomorrow that someone in this congregation will sin. And it would not be any great prediction because we're all going to sin tomorrow more than likely. I could predict that if you go to the DMV tomorrow, it's going to take you more time than you thought it would. <laughs> Bold prediction, right? Not, not, very, not very specific there. Pretty general. Everybody knows that when you go to the DMV, it takes you longer than you think. Um, none of these are very specific. And so anybody who made that kind of prediction would not be impressing anyone. And yet here Jesus does not make a general prediction about what's going to happen to him Instead, he describes in great detail the fate that he was bound to experience as God's will unfolded. And he fulfilled it one step at a time through his obedience. The third thing that this third proclamation of his death repeats is the resolution to Christ's suffering. Jesus does not only tell us how he will be hurt, how he will be shamed, and how he will die, but he also tells us that there is a a radical and awesome ending to this suffering. He would die, yes. He would die cruelly and with great shame, but he had no intentions of staying dead. On the third day, Jesus would perform the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry by walking out of his borrowed tomb alive and well. What a bold prediction. And Jesus' entire credibility hinges on whether this resurrection really happened or not. The first two times that Jesus predicted his death, the twelve could not handle it. They didn't know how to receive this news. They couldn't grasp it. And here on the third time that Jesus is revealing it to them, they still can't handle the news. Verse 34 says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Do you notice that verse 34 redundantly describes that the twelve could not comprehend what was being told? He says it in three different ways, basically the same thing. They understood none of what he was saying. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp it. When the scripture goes through the trouble of repeating a thing, that means that God really wants you to understand. He wants you to identify what's going on here. Why does Luke say this three different ways? For emphasis. We cannot miss this point. These men who were closest to Jesus, these men who had been exposed to His ministry more than anyone else in the world, in the greatest possible way, they have heard His teachings, they have seen the testimony of His life, and yet they were not able to take in Jesus' prediction, even though this is the third time He's giving it to them. Some of their inability to accept it was without a doubt due to the weaknesses of themselves. Their ability to, to see things clearly, their ability to work through their own personal emotions, no doubt had a bearing on whether they could receive these teachings of Jesus or not. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things, and they did not grasp what was said. Man tends to resist believing what he does not want to believe. I don't want to believe that so many of my loved ones are sick right now and struggling through very difficult circumstances, are fighting against cancer, are dealing with serious, serious diagnoses. I don't want to have to believe that. 
And many people, when they learn about some sickness within themselves, will go through a very, a very common exercise of denying it, acting like it's not happening, feeling as though if I just turn my eyes away, then this nightmare, I'll wake up from it and, it, and it'll be gone. But in reality, the truth doesn't just go away. Just because I don't want to believe it doesn't mean that it isn't a real trial that I'm facing. I don't want to believe that I'll never achieve some of the goals and dreams that I have set for myself. And yet each day I'm confronted by my own weakness and my own limitations. And it becomes clear to me that there are certain things I would love to be able to do that I am simply not able to do. I don't want to come to terms with the fact that some of the people that I love are capable of and guilty of doing some very terrible things. I'd rather just think the best of them instead. So you can see, my friends, that the human heart tends to, to see news that it doesn't want to believe and reject that news. The human heart resists what it doesn't want to believe. And the death of Messiah is definitely something that those 12 men who loved Him and followed Him did not want to believe. They have no room in their theology for a king who allows himself to be put to death. So they don't know what to do with this knowledge. They understood the Messiah as the one that God would send to bring Israel back to prominence, to peel them away from this reign of the Roman Empire which had oppressed them and limited their freedoms. They believed this Messiah was going to once and for all give them that promised land that they had missed for so many generations. How could he do that if he were dead? They didn't want to give up that hope and dream that they would be freed men again soon, that Israel and the Holy Land and Palestine would once again belong to them. Jesus often spoke to them in metaphors and paradoxes. It's very highly likely that they reason in their own minds Jesus cannot mean that he will literally die. This has got to be symbolic of something. Maybe this is like when he tells us that we need to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. That, we, that, that That's how we follow after him more accurately. Maybe he means that he's going to die in the same way, that he's going to deny himself. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. So there were conditions within these 12 men that were keeping them from understanding. But we also need to understand here that part of their inability to understand was clearly beyond them. It didn't just have to do with their intellect. If, if Christ had chosen smarter men, they still would not have gotten it. If they were able to get their emotions under control, they still would not have seen fully what Jesus was trying to reveal to them. Because God Himself had stepped in and hidden these things from them. Verse 34, this saying was hidden from them. That is, that, that is to say that they were passively blocked from knowing this. Luke points to a supernatural element. It means that for the purposes of accomplishing His will in this world, God worked in concert with the limitations of their human minds to make sure that, that what was going to happen in the city of David wasn't something they would really comprehend until after it had happened. God dimmed their understanding and kept this truth hidden from them even though it was clearly kept out in the open. Verbally, He shared the truth with clear words, yet they could not grasp it. In watching the events of the cross unfold, we're seeing God reach down into the chaos of our fallenness and redeem it by force. 
He is exercising sovereignty over what he has made, and he has to do it that way. The broken creation that is so afflicted by sin will not and cannot heal itself. Our hope and our joy comes from the fact that God so loved the world that he didn't step back and let things unfold forever. He reached down into our our humanity, into our reality, and changed it with his good and powerful will. We don't like to believe it all the time, but God's sovereignty means that when he doesn't want us to understand, we're not going to understand. He exercises full rights over the things that he has made, and though we clearly have a degree of freedom, we are not as free as we would like to believe ourselves to be. God knows we will not solve our problems on our own. So he must resume control in order to make straight what we have made crooked. As part of that process, he does not allow his 12 disciples to see what in hindsight seems plain to us. Any of you peek ahead to the week that we're not quite to yet? Do you ever read ahead in Luke and see what we're going to study next week? If you have, then you might have noticed that the scripture we're going to be talking about next week has to do with a blind man. A blind man that cannot see. And then Jesus intervenes and gives him sight. I don't think it's any coincidence that that incident happens right after we're told that these 12 disciples are being hidden from the truth, that they cannot see literally what is right in front of them. It suited God's purpose to let it remain a mystery to the heart of sin that doesn't understand the things of eternity. Here even believers who are committed to following don't necessarily comprehend the things of God. This passage, especially when viewed along with the other two proclamations and the four allusions to the death of Jesus that we see in Luke chapter, um, several chapters in Luke, make it plain as day to us that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It was no unfortunate failure that Jesus was arrested, that he was dragged from council to council, until ultimately he was forced to drag his own cross up the hill of Calvary. Jesus was 100% aware of where he was headed. He was not caught off guard when Judas gave him that fateful kiss of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was not surprised by the lack of justice that was shown by what was supposed to be the just and high counsel of the high priest. Jesus knew He was approaching his end. And furthermore, he knew that was why he came to earth in the first place. Given the scripture that the Israelites had been reading for hundreds of years, it's more surprising to us that they should not have seen this coming. Verse 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus ties this prediction of his death, his burial, and his resurrection to the prophets, to the scriptures that the Israelites had had for generations. Everything that's about to take place in this final phase of Jesus' earthly ministry, from this point in the book of Luke to the end of the book, all of this has been foretold in the scriptures that the nation of Israel has been reading for literally hundreds of years. And so Jesus is not rewriting the script here. When we see this death, this burial, and this resurrection, it's not as though Jesus has taken stock of all the Old Testament law and said, wow, you know what? That was a good try, but we didn't get it quite right, so let's adjust ship and let's do it differently. Jesus was not changing the plan. 
He was fulfilling it. The passion of Jesus was not a departure from the Old Testament, but a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. And we see evidence of this all over the Scripture, my friends. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus has just begun His earthly ministry, and He's going into a synagogue, <clears throat> and He's invited to preach, to teach from the scrolls of the Old Testament. And He happens to open up a scroll that had written upon it the words of the prophet Isaiah. Verse 20, And He rolled the scroll up after having preached it. He rolled the scroll up and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon Him. And He began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus pointed to these Old Testament words which had lit the way for the future for Israel. And He is saying to them boldly, these are not just predictions for some future time. They are happening right here in my life before your eyes. John, the Gospel of John, comments on the details of Jesus' death in chapter 19, verse 36, and says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. John had just gone to describe that at the end of his life, as, as time is running short, the Roman officials had felt pressure from the Jewish community to get these, de these dying bodies down off the cross soon because the Passover was about to happen. They didn't want to have these grisly pictures of condemnation before their eyes as they celebrated holy things. And so the Roman soldiers were instructed to go forward and to break the legs of the men who were on the cross. If they wanted to speed up the dying process, breaking the legs of those who were on the cross made it almost impossible for them to lift their bodies up, which meant that their chests would grow even tighter and they would suffocate sooner than they otherwise would have. The two thieves on the cross had this done to them. Their legs were broken to accelerate that dying process, but coming up to Jesus, they realized that he had likely already expired. And so before breaking his bones, they took a, a lance, a spear, and they stuck it into Jesus' side. And from his side flowed blood mingled with water. And they knew at that point that Jesus had already been dead for a short time. And they never bothered to break his legs. Scripture prophesies that his, his bones would not be broken. Though he would be crushed for our sins, he would not have his bones broken in the process. Peter's preaching in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter's pointing back to the Old Testament and saying to those who had gathered around to hear him preach that Jesus was in fact the culmination of all these promises. That is why in Acts chapter 8, when the Apostle Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch traveling on the road to, um, uh, to, to Egypt, he's reading Isaiah in, in, in his carriage and he's confused. Philip walks up to him and says, can I help you to, to understand what you're reading? And he speaks from him, to him from chapter 53 of Isaiah about the great messianic prophecies of who Jesus would become. And that is why Peter's first sermon preached to his Jewish countrymen in Jerusalem during Pentecost consisted of an exposition of Joel and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 in Acts chapter 2 if you want to read that later in the week. He referred to the scripture they held to be true which testified to the very things that Jesus did. The same Jesus these Jews had demanded be crucified. And that is why in the Apostle Paul's 
first sermon which he preached in Antioch after his conversion. In Acts chapter 12, he preaches about the death of Jesus and then references Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16-10, Habakkuk 1-5, and Isaiah 49-6. When Paul was radically saved, by the way, he did not go right into ministry. What did he do? He went to Arabia. And Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 describes saying, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He didn't go out preaching right away. He didn't go and join the movement. Instead, verse 17 says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem. What was he doing for those three years? What was Paul doing for the three years between his conversion on the road to Damascus and the time that he actually started preaching the truth? He was reading the Old Testament scriptures. He was searching their words to see that in fact he had missed so much of what was right in front of him. The Lord God had done a work in the heart of this man who before had proclaimed allegiance to Yahweh, yet had been dimmed in his understanding of what that meant. God opened his eyes and gave him a new heart. And so though as a Pharisee he thought he knew the Old Testament, he went back to it and read it again with fresh eyes and saw the truth that Jesus was not a departure from the Old Testament, was in, in fact the culmination of it, was the fulfillment of these words that had been given to God's chosen people. Everything they were told to expect was coming true in this man Jesus Christ. Though the passion was foretold in Scripture, it was not foreseen by Israel. Israel was largely oblivious to the details of it. John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40 says, You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Israel looked at the Old Testament Scripture, but in it, what they saw was law, <clears throat> as they should have seen, but they interpreted that law as a means for their own salvation. They felt, if we can only keep this law, then we will be saved, when in reality, the law, according to the Apostle Paul, was given to us. Why? So that we might learn our failure, so that we might see our great need for a Savior, so that we might understand that apart from the intervention of God's sovereignty into our reality, that we would have continued on in disobedience forever. Jesus Christ broke into our reality and made it possible for us to know Him. And that same Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament Scripture. So friends, if the Gospel makes sense to you, it's not because of your sense. It's not because you're wiser than the poor fools who don't understand the Gospel. That's not what we're getting at here. If the gospel makes sense to you, it's not because you thought about it more carefully or that you have a knack for spiritual things. It's not because you were better educated. It is simply because God has removed the veil of confusion from your eyes and illuminated you and made it possible that you can see what is real about what He has made. He has flipped a switch, so to speak, in your mind so that you can see Him for what He is instead of what the world perceives Him to be. When we read the Old Testament, and it breaks my heart 
that too many people see the Old Testament as nice stories that don't really apply to us anymore. That breaks my heart because God's scripture again and again is told to us in the New Testament to be the basis upon which we can believe in our Savior. So when we read the Old Testament, we must, must read it with eyes that see Christ, that seek the, 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 the signposts that point forward to the work that Jesus would do in our lives. When we read these prophets and these psalms, when we read these things, we should always ask ourselves, in what way, shape, or form is God showing us what Christ will do through these words? In no way does that take away from the original meaning that they were intended to have for the people that heard them first, people that knew less about Christ than we know. But we should always have in mind as we study through the Old Testament that this Old Testament truth points us forward to the victory that is won on Calvary. In a few uh, weeks, maybe months, I know how slow I preach, in a few months maybe, Luke chapter 24, we're going to see an incident where two men, right after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, two of his followers, not a part of the twelve, but part of the bigger group that had followed along and were fairly committed to Jesus Christ, are traveling on a road to a town called Emmaus. And these two men are reflecting as they walk upon the events that have happened just recently. Their whole world has been turned upside down. They were following Jesus Christ, and though he had proclaimed three times to his disciples that he would die, they didn't see it coming. And so when Rome crucified him, when these Jewish councils condemned him, they were shocked. They didn't have a plan for what they would do if this took place. And as they walk upon this road, they're joined by a third man, a man who is divinely disguised to them. They don't see who he is at first. And they begin to talk to him about all these things that have just happened in Jerusalem. And this man eventually begins to relay to them that he's not just a traveler as they are. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, why is it so hard for you to simply accept what your very prophets tell you is going to happen? Verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So how much of scripture is about Jesus? All the scripture. It just says it right here. He interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then a little bit later in verses 44 and 45, and then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He reveals that he is actually Jesus in the flesh, incarnate, reincarnate. That he has appeared to them to reveal that he is not dead, that he is alive. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to what? To understand the scriptures. Friends, the New Testament scripture constantly points to Christ in the Old Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, we will understand it best by keeping in mind what, it, what its ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus and the things that he did. We cannot separate what Scripture has clearly described as one continuous story of God redeeming man for his own glory. Had Jesus not risen, then those who see the cross as a tragic mistake would be right. We of all the people in the world would be most pitied for our 
faith in Jesus Christ. We would be pitiful for putting all of our hope and trust in Him and staking our whole lives on this.